For the longest time, the, the Jesuits were one of those groups that used it, but it was just kind of a spiritual direction tool. But it wasn't about a test. It was about just a conversation. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly on this episode. Missy and I are going to recall our past Holy Weeks and Easter memories. Then later on the pod, we sat down with Dr. John Singletary, who is the Dean of the Diana Garland School of Social Work at Baylor University. He's got a new book out titled Leadership by the Number, Using the Enneagram to Strengthen Educational Leadership. And then after our interview, Missy and I are going to reveal for the very first time our Enneagram numbers. It's going to be a great pod, so stay tuned. Happy Easter, Missy. Well, it's not quite Easter. It's actually a happy Good Good Friday. I don't know if you wish. It's kind of weird to wish a happy it's Good Friday. very strange, isn't it? <laughs> you know, growing up, I always thought that was a strange term for the day Jesus was crucified, Good Friday. So you went to seminary. Tell us why do we call it Good Friday. <laughs> I have no idea. Man, I wish I did. <laughs> all those years in seminary. Yeah. And all of that knowledge, up. all the Greek, the Hebrew, yeah, the exegetical... Yeah things you learned yeah i mean it was it was i guess good for humanity not so good for jesus <laughs> no <laughs> but always it always bothered me so at any rate uh it's a holy week i mean lots going on last sunday was palm sunday obviously and got to see all the kids on social media and at church waving palms. the palms so it was sweet. so great brings yeah. back a lot of memories did yeah. you do that as a kid we did not. We didn't either. Really? No. Wow. Why not? I don't know. I, I never knew that until we we had kids of our own. You know, now that I think about it, I mean, really, there was a standard sermon. You, you, both you and I grew up in Southern Baptist homes and churches. Um, it seems like the Sunday before Easter was always Crucifixion Sunday, <laughs> and then the Sunday of Easter obviously was Resurrection Sunday. I think that's right. Because we didn't do Good Friday service or Monday mm. Thursday or anything like that. That's all been very new to me as an adult. Yeah. So I'm glad we celebrate and mark those occasions now. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I just know in my family that you did not wear white shoes, carry a white purse, or wear a white hat before Easter. And why is that? Because that's the rule. <laughs> <laughs> it's somewhere in the Bible. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I am sure of it. But to this day, I it's cannot. In the, it's in the apocrypha. <laughs> I cannot wear white shoes, especially to church. Ah, uh, that lost gospel Easter. of Missy. <laughs> it truly is. But that was, I mean, that was the thing on Easter. You got to bring out the white. And so, I mean, when you were a little kid, I mean, because, you know, I, I knew you, you grew up in Dallas-Fort Worth and, you were prim and proper going to church on well, Sunday. Sure. Were, I mean, did you have the Easter dress? I mean, oh paint the picture gosh. for us. What did little Missy look like as she strolled to church on Easter morning? Well, aside from that phase of 
cut off jean shorts and white Hanes t-shirts <laughs> that I went through and, and maybe still going through. <laughs> um, yes. Easter dresses were a big thing for myself and my sister. We had a, typically the dress again, the white shoes mm-hmm. with the white ruffled socks. We like around the ankles, the little, oh, fr- yeah. the, like the frilly things. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. And we would have gloves no way. Purse. Oh, yes. Gloves? And a hat. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, we did. And then we would go leave early and go by my grandparents' house. And we would get to, my sister and I would get to pick a rose off of my grandfather's rose bushes and pin it on our dresses. Oh, Easter. my goodness. <laughs> so when you and I had two boys, yes. I did my best to carry on this tradition of making. Now that you bring that up, remember the church, uh, a lot of the people at church would ask us what the color palette was for Easter. Yes, yes. because when the boys were little, that the, the routine was I would go and pick out what I was wearing on Easter, which would set the palette for the family. Yes. Then you and the boys had to follow suit, basically. And that for you, that meant a tie right. or bow tie coordinating. And for the boys, that meant some adorable outfit. Oh, and they loved it every Easter, oh right? Oh my gosh, they hated it. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> I should not tell this story. It's terrible. Oh, are you going to tell the Easter story? It's terrible. Oh. <laughs> I used to call this my best, worst parenting moment ever, and now I just call it my worst. This is really <laughs> terrible. Oh, my goodness. This is good. I'm embarrassed. Well, good maybe too strong a it's word terrible. for it. <laughs> so, our routine on Easter morning, you would always leave well before us because it's Easter and sure. you were working in the church. And so, I was left to get myself and the boys ready for church. Again, not a big deal, but Easter, we did dress up a little more. So, what this particular Easter, I, I think they were maybe three and six, something like mm-hmm. that. And so you left and I was getting ready and I had had the boys dressed. And I mean, and you know, nothing ridiculous, but it was khaki shorts and just like cute little saddle shoes. And they had on uh, a button down, long sleeve button down shirts with like the cuff that had like the different print. How old were they? Like three and six. So you, you know, you like fold the cuff up of the shirt. So it's got like a different plaid on it. You know what I mean? Like the button down, but then they had a sweater vest that like had the coordinating argyle. So they weren't matching, but they were coordinating. So cute. Yeah. And 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 what did my dad say about uh, those outfits at times? He said, he used to say, well, that says I'll eat Play-Doh if you ask me. (laughs) Anyways, so I'm finishing getting ready in the bathroom and, um, our oldest son comes to the doorway and he's in his, you know, clothes that he's not used to being in this button down the sweater vest. And he's kind of like, you know, itching around. I mean, he's just like squirming around in it. And he's like, mom, this just isn't comfortable. <laughs> and I looked over at him and again, mom on Sunday morning, you're gone. I'm just, I'm stressed, hurried, you know, trying to get out the door. And I just knee jerk looked over at him and I said, Cole, do you think Jesus was comfortable on the cross? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, It was terrible and cringeworthy and bless him. He just like dropped his shoulders and he's like, no. And he walked away. Oh my God. Oh, that explains so much. It does. He's now an aspiring comedian. So there you have it, folks. <laughs> oh, 
Religious oh. trauma breeds comedians. That's exactly right. That is exactly <laughs> what happens. Oh my goodness. So anywho, but that was that was kind of our uh, situation. And as they got older, I had to let go of that a little bit. And now I just, you know, if they'll just show up at church on Easter exactly. Sunday, I'm happy. <laughs> or even just shoot us a text. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, so growing up as a kid or even when the boys were younger, what was some of your favorite, uh, activities to do during Easter week? Because, uh, I tell you real quickly, one of mine, when I was little, my brother and I would dye eggs and you'd get the vinegar and stuff. And even when I smell vinegar these days, it takes me right back to that copper little thing. You put the egg mm-hmm. in and you dipped it in the colors and, and then you had the like wax crayon that made we draw and stuff on so that was fun in case you missed it i was married to a preacher which meant there wasn't a whole lot of fun happening (laughs) at home on easter week (laughs) so i forgot about that i'm not even sure if our boys remember or ever got to really die good point good point good point i was was gone most of the bit stressful in our home it was good good stress but it was always busy and stressful so to all of those ministers pastors Families, spouses, hang in there. We see you. We We see you. And just think, Sunday is close by. That that Sunday nap is the best one of the year. (laughs) Absolutely is. Everybody would ask me how you know how's things going when I was pastoring in local church. They would say, How's Holy Week going? I said, Well, we're one day closer to getting him out of the tomb. Yeah. (laughs) Once we get him out of the tomb, hands off, I'm done. (laughs) Don't call me. It's a great week, but it is yeah, a busy week for is. those in ministry. So we are thinking of you and um, wishing you well and wishing you a very long, lovely Sunday nap. Absolutely. Coming up next is Dr. John Singletary. Talk about his new book, Leadership by the Number, Using the Enneagram to Strengthen Educational Leadership. Hey, Good Faith Weekly listeners, we've got an incredible opportunity coming up April 25th through 26th of this year. The Birmingham Montgomery Civil Rights Good Faith Experience is right around the corner. Join Starlet Thomas, Bruce Gorley, Missy Randall, and myself as we retrace the steps of those who made history and nurture a faith that moves us all forward. For more information, go to goodfaithmedia.org and click on Experiences. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from Waco, Texas. Dr. John Singletary serves as Dean and Professor of the Diana R. Garland School of Social Work at Baylor University. He is a nationally recognized Enneagram teacher and consultant and focuses this work on leadership development and relationship building. His research and teaching have centered on educational leadership, congregations, and religious organizations. His new book, Leadership by the Number, Using the Enneagram to Strengthen Educational Leadership, will be available on April the 11th, wherever you purchase your reading materials. John, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you so much. What an honor to be with you all, uh, Mitch and Missy. I really do look forward to this conversation. Uh, Grateful for your interest in the book, and I'm even more grateful for all the good work uh, that Good Faith Media does. Thanks. Okay, Dr. Singletary, I know we're here to talk about your book. I'm so sorry, Dr. Singletary. We're gonna, <laughs> I love this start. We're going to make this about me for a little bit. Okay, good. good for sure. a little bit? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, that's the overarching theme. So I have yet to drink the Enneagram Kool-Aid. All right. Um, 
Today I, could be the day. Today could be the day. We have, I feel the Holy Spirit moving right now. <laughs> we have friends who are passionate about sure, the Enneagram no surprise. and who delight in arguing about what number that I am. And that's just oh. been the fun for me. So I've just left it alone. I have yet to take this evaluation. I don't know what number I am. I know what other people say that I am. Apparently a big mess of numbers. So I'm going to let you be the one to sell me on this. So if you'll... <laughs> Imagine with me, we are in a park. I've got a card table and a big poster board sign that says, I don't need an Enneagram number. Change my mind. <laughs> okay. So the funny thing is, it, I often say I'm not an evangelist for the Enneagram. Now, people find that hard to believe since I've just written this book on it. But I've written, <laughs> I've written the book because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an Enneagram nerd. I love to think about it. And I love the potential that it has. But I, but I'm not someone who goes around guessing people's numbers. I People ask me to do that. I, I'm just not very good at that part. There are some people that both know the, the numbers and character types and are much better guessers. That's not me. So I'm not going to guess your number or tell your number. And when I say I'm not an evangelist, part of me is like, I, I don't care if you like this tool or not. I want people to be self-reflective and self-aware. Mm -hmm. And I think the Enneagram is a good tool for that. I think it's one of the better ones. Is it the only one? No. So if you'd rather use something else, but I, I want us all to, I think it is important to pay attention to ourselves and we can talk about why. Well, I, I think it's funny. You mentioned people who are into it and know all the, I mean, I have friends who are like, you're a four with a wing seven, but when you're <laughs> in an unhealthy place, you go to a two. Right. And right. <laughs> just, yeah, no, it is the Kool-Aid you mentioned is right. It is a, it is a, Cuckoo Kool-Aid. I think I'm one of four people in the world who don't have an Enneagram number yet. And so I I I mentioned to Mitch when I saw that you had a book coming up, I was like, listen, I think I really think we should have John on because I really think that this would be fun um, for you to try to sell me on this and then I will go get my Enneagram number and we will circle back and unpack it. How's that? <laughs> well, I think what he said that being self-aware is, and yeah. it, that comes out of the book Absolutely. too, that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, but uh, it's just important for us to kind of know what's going on inside. And that's what John has done so brilliantly over his career is of help course. people find that. So, so are you going to take it? I mean, I, am. I think no. you and I both should take it. No, I think my, my plan is that after the interview, I will take the Enneagram test. And then when we do our intro and outro, that's when I will reveal. Oh my, my goodness. Enneagram. So ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned for the closing. That's right. Because we'll find what Missy really is. We'll have a big drum roll. <laughs> so, so one of the other interesting things about the Enneagram is there's not, you know, people often say, like you're saying, take the test. But there's not a single test because no one owns the Enneagram per se. Like it, StrengthsFinder is one of those popular tools that Clifton and Gallup own. And you can only find out your top five strengths if you take their test. Uh, somebody owns the Berkman. Somebody owns Myers-Briggs. Well, a couple people do. But, but the Enneagram predates all of that. And it wasn't a test until about 40 or so years ago. Mm. Uh, it, it it began to be about these nine types about 50 or 75 years ago, but it took a while for people to create tests to go with it. For the longest time, the, the Jesuits were one of those groups that used it, but it was just kind of a, a spiritual direction tool, but it wasn't about a test. It was about just a conversation 
about these three dimensions that, that we'll talk about. And really going back a hundred years when uh, it was kind of rediscovered uh, in the West, it, it wasn't about nine types and there certainly was no test at the time. It really was just a tool for introspection. Well, I'm a big fan of the Jesuits, so you brought that up. Now I'm going to have to see <laughs> okay, this. So I'm going to yeah. send me a link to like the evaluation or the questionnaire that you feel like I should do after okay, after okay, this interview, it. and I'll, I'll get to work on that. Well, I appreciate you kind of giving us an overall synopsis of the Enneagram and its purpose and its you know objective of trying to get people to be self-aware. But your book is hey. directly connects the Enneagram to leadership in itself. And you talk about specifically the importance of self-awareness in the book. Many leaders uh, spend most of their time focusing uh, on outward issues, spending resources and mental energy on everything that's outside of their control and very little uh, time looking inward. And so how can the Enneagram help leaders become better leaders? Yeah, and it's no surprise that we focus our energy outward. We we have to. I mean, we have we have budgets we're responsible for. We have uh, donors or raising money or uh, coming up with revenue that we're responsible for. Supervision of staff, a mission and strategy and vision. All of those things take us outside of ourselves to the constituents that we work with. So of course, leaders are focused on other people. But I'm convinced that the most effective outward leadership comes from a place within. And that's what makes the Enneagram a great spiritual resource and connects it to contemplative spirituality and the contemplative disciplines. Uh, but also from a social perspective, it, it connects us to, to mindfulness, which our, our students are often interested in, even if they're not interested in, in spirituality. And one of the things I tell our students is uh, self-awareness is the most important tool that social workers have. I'm not a plumber. So when I go to a job, I don't have a wrench and some pipes with me. I'm not a mechanic. I don't have a car lift and a jack with me. Uh, as a social worker, like a lawyer, like a teacher, we are the instrument. We are the tool. It's me engaging with a client. It's me engaging with community leaders. So I've got to pay attention to what I'm bringing into that. What, what what biases do I have? What what things am I not paying attention to that are percolating within me that that cause me to to be annoyed? That cause me to uh, steamroll over people? That cause me to check out if I don't like something happening? We all have these kinds of automatic habitual responses, and the Enneagram just says pay attention to those. So I love, that's, that's a big part of what we're trying to do. I love the imagery that you just painted because as leaders, some of the times we are making decisions based or for organizations or, you know, for institutions. And a lot of times those decisions are primarily based upon outside issues and resources. But to begin seeing the individual that you are as one of those resources, as the asset in the decision-making program, you're going to want to pay attention to that. You're going to make certain that you understand who you are as a person so that uh, that knowledge can help you make better decisions as a leader and become a better leader in itself. I think that is vitally important. That's something the book, I think, does an excellent job bringing out. 
Well, I, and I think the area where we're most kind of keenly aware of it in the past few years is our anti-racist work. Mm-hmm. We're more and more committed in, in religious circles as civic leaders in, in so many settings to the work of what we often say shorthand DEI work. And we just appointed an associate dean for diversity, equity, inclusion in, in the Garland School at Baylor and a few others at, at Baylor have done that. And and our students are wanting to be more equipped to do, to be anti-racist. And, and we can teach them anti-racist skills. We can teach them how to engage conversations about race and racism in society. But you know how fraught those conversations are. It's at the core of your work as well. Mm-hmm. And you walk into a meeting and uh, as, as a white person, I, I'm anxious about how I'm going to be perceived. I want to say the right things. I don't want to sound foolish or racist. Uh, I have... Uh, you know, white people often have this fragility we talk about. All of that is an invitation to this inner work. All of that is an invitation to see, okay, John, how are you showing up? Not just what do you believe about race and racism, not just how equipped are you to lead a conversation. I can be a great facilitator about difficult dialogues, but if I'm not keenly aware of how I feel about hard conversations in a society that's consumed with how we think about race and racism, that then I'm going to trip up. And so the Enneagram, it can be a tool to help us be more equipped for those kinds of conversations, for that kind of work. Well said. I'm so glad you gave the example. I was going to ask you to give one. That was perfect. Um, But John, following up, as you mentioned, in people as people of faith, and specifically Christians, you connect the Enneagram to three capacities of feeling, thinking, and doing to the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor. Uh, why do you think it's beneficial for faith leaders to see the connection between these three capacities of the Enneagram or dimensions and also the sacred text in readings? Yeah, I, I think it's important to, to know about these three dimensions none of us are human without them and to know that these dimensions have been around for as long as we've thought about who we are and and humans have that unique aspect among created beings to be self-reflective and so we we do get to ask who are we and and what does my life mean and how has god made me what is God creating me for? And we we often think about those things, but we also have feelings about those things, and we're often engaged in living that out. And so what I tell people is any, any definition of personality, any definition of trying to understand personhood makes some reference to those three characteristics. And so for shorthand, I, I borrow from the language of my mentor, Suzanne Stabile, uh, and a couple of other writers who really just shorthand talk about them as thinking, feeling, and doing. Sometimes we hear people talk about the body parts, uh, heart, head, and gut, or heart, head, and hand, I sometimes say for alliteration. Uh, sometimes we see, you know, more, we see fancier words to talk about the, these these ideas. We, we hear people talk about an affective dimension and an intellectual dimension and an instinctive dimension. Those are also just synonyms. But, but as you mentioned, even in our biblical text, we hear the call to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And heart is there, a reference to feeling. 
Mind is there, a reference to thinking. Strength is there, a reference to this work is embodied. Loving God and loving neighbors is something we do with our body. Uh, now, in some of the vers- translations, the, the fourth one is there, particularly in Mark, that's soul. Uh, one of the things that some of the Enneagram writers have said is that maybe maybe what makes the human soul what it is, is the fact that it is comprised of the other three dimensions. And I like that idea. The soul is who we are as thinking, feeling, and doing creations. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. That's great. I do appreciate that. And I appreciate that it's something you can layer in when you're a person, um, a, a f- faith leader of any sort. You, you, th- like you said, this is a tool to help you more effectively do your work. And what's funny is, you know, you think about Jesus' words uh, after you know, the young ruler and uh, lawyer right. ask him that question. And, you know, it, it is a very specific question. It is asking for knowledge. It's asking for salvation. And mm-hmm. salvation, as we understand it, is not is not all about the sweet by and by. It's about salvation right now, beginning today. And I think that's what the question was meant to be. And that's why Jesus answers it the way he does. And to, to utilize and to make that connection with these modes that you're talking about is essential in taking care of the entire self. Yeah. It is a holistic idea. Yeah. So I like that a lot. So, well, I could sit here and talk about the book and the reason people need to buy the book, especially leaders who are wanting to be more self-aware. And because we don't have time, we need people to go and buy the book, which is going to be dropping on April the 11th. But there's an important story, a personal story that you shared, and I can't remember if it was chapter two or chapter three of the book, but you recall a very trying time for you personally and professionally. You told the story of the time when your mentor, Diana Garland, and your mother passed away from cancer, while at the same time assuming the duties of the interim dean at Baylor's School of Social Work. How did the knowledge of the Enneagram help you through that time? Because, John, I don't know about you, I think we are just now coming to grips about the negative impact that the pandemic has had upon us all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And some people are you know, thinking, okay, we came out of the pandemic and things should be better, but I'm not feeling any better. Yeah. And so could you share that story with us? Because I think that would be very inspirational to a lot of our listeners. Yeah, sure. Thank you. And I feel like we are in another season where some of those same experiences and reflections I had eight years ago are, are have come full circle. They're, they're relevant in the, in the same way again. And for me, that moment in, in time, that season was an invitation to be fully present to my whole self, to, to, to ask myself, how am I going to be, how am I going to grieve as a whole person? Now, of course I wasn't, trying to be that noble at the time. I was just trying to, to, to get through. Sure. And, and I just had some uh, moments of clarity along the way of, uh, I'm not doing this very well. I, I'm not, I'm not my best self right now. I, I'm trying to, to lead my school to make space for them to grieve. Uh, but I'm, I'm not as connected to them as I want to be. I'm not as connected to, to, to my own family as I want to be as my mom was, was dying. And, 
one of the things I became aware of is that <clears throat> I I perform grief, I, I do grief, but I don't feel grief. So the, the example for me was uh, as soon as Diana received her her diagnosis, she she asked me to help her think about some organizational things in the school, and, and I jumped into action. You know that was that was a moment I felt prepared for. Uh, I could I could help her communicate in the way that felt honoring to her. I could help our people prepare for what the next steps would be like. Uh, six months later, when she passed away. I I was able to to help organize a memorial service that I knew would honor her. I could do the tasks associated with grief. But when people would ask me how I was feeling, it that was a much more difficult question for me. Uh, feeling my feelings has always been a hard thing for me to, to really know how to do. 30 years ago, when my wife and I were first married, those uh, wonderful early years of marriage that are also sometimes the rocky years of marriage. Uh, we found ourselves in therapy and the therapist said to both of us, what are you feeling <laughs> in, in this moment? And I was like, oh man, don't make me talk about my feelings. Uh, lo and behold, 30 years, you know, when Diana was dying and my own mom, people rightfully asked me, John, what are you feeling? Right now, coming out of this pandemic and we're still coming out of it, uh, I can lead through it. I know how to support my people. I can do all the things to make our school thrive. But how do I how do I feel? How have I experienced anxiety? How has depression affected me? Oh man. Uh, I know it has. I feel it, but I don't let myself feel it and I'm not inclined to want to talk about it. But Enneagram work is an invitation to to stay in that space. It, Enneagram work is an invitation to think about how we balance or, or really don't balance thinking and feeling and doing. And I'm a person who's much more comfortable thinking and doing than I am feeling. Uh, none of us balance all three of those characteristics sure. perfectly. That's the invitation. Yeah. So the question is coming out of a pandemic, coming out of a time of grief, grief uh, after a, a time of trauma, how do we notice our own imbalance of those three characteristics. And you also talk about the importance of liminal space and kind of existing within that liminal space. And there's yeah. uh, one of your mentors had this wonderful saying that you mentioned in the book. I can't recall it. I'm sure you can. Uh, but how, how important is us or how important is it that we, I don't know if comfortable is the right word, but the acknowledgement that most of us kind of exist within that liminal space and that, juxtaposition between these different modes. Yeah, the, the beautiful anguish of vocational liminality is, I believe, the way she said it. And and and, and we're in a moment of that again as a, as a society. It's this, I don't know if we can say it's beautiful, but there's this profound anguish of, of liminality. It might not be vocational for all of us. It is for far too many in, in our society where the where the the pandemic affected their livelihood and their jobs. But for all of us, uh, churches, how do we do church after the pandemic? Organizations, do we work from home still? Do we office in, in, in space? All of that does invite us to this liminal space of, of waiting and wondering. And we can rush it. We can force it. We'll still learn from our mistakes when we make the wrong decision. Or we can just kind of 
learn to slow down, which we don't do well, which I don't do well. And, and it's, an it's an opportunity, an invitation to reflect again on these dimensions. But, but what that means is uh, who we are as we look at this moment. Excellent. Well, Dr. John Singletary is Dean and Professor of the Diana R. Garland School of Social Work at Baylor University. His new book, Leadership by the Number, Using the Enneagram to Strengthen Educational Leadership, will be available April the 11th. But John, before we let you go, Missy's got one final question for you. So Dr. Singletary, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? You told me it was coming, and I'm still not prepared for it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that may um, be the answer in itself. I think that is. <laughs> um, you know, a, a desire for solidarity mm. uh, and, and how deeply rooted that is and who I try to be, how I try to live and lead. A part of it is my goal to, to balance these dimensions of who I am, to allow myself to be a feeling person as well as a thinker and a doer. But but I am a, a, a white male, Christian, straight man, leading, leading a school where there's much diversity. And, and I just want to be a person committed to learning about the experiences of my colleagues and, and the more to tell is just my desire to be a listener uh, and a servant in, in, in this space. I hope that's what people see in me, but that's certainly something I'm uh, committed to is just uh, truly learning to, to value the stories uh, that we have uh, too often failed to really pay attention to in our churches and our organizations and in our society. Lovely. Well, John, thanks again for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. Uh, but not only are you this incredible author and the book drops again on April the 11th, go out and buy it, listeners. It is fabulous. You will not regret it. But obviously, you've got a lot of other things going on in your life as dean of the school, social work and other things. Where's the best way people can find out more about you and the work at uh, the School of Social Work at Baylor? Well, please don't hesitate to, to look up our website. My email address can, can be found there, but we're also all over social media. I spend way too much time on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, but love the connections there. The big part of the reason I'm, I'm on these is it's a way to connect with our students and our alumni uh, and just the, the network of friends that we have. So please join uh, me in that network and let's find ways to connect on sure. the socials. John, it's been a pleasure. It's always great to see you, my friend. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Mitch and Missy. I can't wait to follow up to see if you've become any more interested in this tool. Oh, she's taking, she's going right. to take the test. Next time we talk, right. I'll have a number for you. Love it. When the, by the time the episode drops, there will be a number. There will be right. a number. I'll follow up. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks, y'all. I've really been looking forward to this conversation with John because everybody in our world over the last several years has been talking about the Enneagram. True. And also, we just love John. We do. Let's John's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, any chance to talk to him is Absolutely, great. yeah. That was, so, yeah, that was, uh, that was great. I, I, when I saw he had that book coming out, I was very excited because I knew this would be fun for us to to do and explore since it's a, such a big thing within our 
uh, social circles, but you and I hadn't yet jumped in the waters of the Enneagram. Um, and what, I th- fa- fa- what I found fascinating about not only the, our conversation with John, but also in the book was he tells a little bit about the history of the Enneagram and it's been around quite a while. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't either. Uh, because, you know, I don't know about you, Missy, but growing up, there's these, there's always these tests that you would take. There's Myers-Briggs. There's other ones. I can't my parents remember. gave me a lot of tests for different <laughs> things, but I'm pretty sure that might be different than what you're talking well, yeah, about. Yeah, well, you're special. <laughs> we all know you're special. That's right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, there's always been this quest by humanity to try to find out and discover more about their self and to become more self-aware of who you are as a person and discover your strengths and what you may be susceptible to moving forward to try to better yourself, to be aware of yourself, to be conscious about uh, what's going on with in not only your heart, but your mind and your soul. And that's why, you know, it's been, I always have a difficult time with these because even, and we did take the test and we'll tell everybody our numbers here later on, but uh, I always have difficulty taking tests like this because it's usually multiple choice and both answers always sound right to me. <laughs> right. I, and I just have such a hard time making a definitive decision about um, which one would be right. Cause I'm like, well, if, 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 can you tell me a little bit more about the circumstances? Like, who are the people involved here? Right. So it is very stressful, and that's one of the reasons I've shied away from any yeah. of these um, types of things. I do think, though, going into this, I love how, and again, just growing up the way I did, I knew, I mean, you did these things. They were kind of a, a, a secular thing. They didn't much cross over into your faith community or faith journey or your church. You know, it was kind right. of, it was, it was separate because at church were people of the book, you sure. know, um, especially in, in the Baptist church. And so I love the way that, that now I am seeing, I mean, I think it's always been there. It's just my purview was very limited, mm-hmm. how we are able to layer some of these tools in with, um, like, like John's writing about, with leadership or with your profession or in your faith and, and, and finding out better ways um, to look at yourself, to understand yourself holistically, because it, it is um, a part of the whole of you. I don't know about you, but, you know, even from a younger age and taking these other tests and now taking the Enneagram, I've always had a hard time trying to come, with, come to grips with, do I really want to know that much about myself? Yeah, that's kind of the scary thing. And and I've just been trying to be authentic about this and genuine because there may be things inside me I don't want to know. Oh, I know there's things inside me I don't want to know. I need to lock those things up. Yes. Push them way, way down. I'm pretty sure it is apparent to everyone. But um, here we are. Yeah. But I, I can understand and appreciate uh the importance of being self-aware of, again, doing assessments like this, because it does help you uh, make decisions, be a better leader, uh, be a better friend, hopefully spouse, uh, parent. Intent. <laughs> but uh, but no, uh, John's book's great. Uh, really appreciate him coming on the show. Well, I didn't get the um, my hands on the advanced copy, so I haven't read it yet. And also because I wanted to take the test and get my type before I read it. So I'm, I'm excited to read it. It comes out April 11th, yep. which is in a week or so. Yeah, next from, week. 
the dropping of this podcast. Yeah. So I'm excited to get my hands on it and now apply all of my newfound knowledge about my type. I know. So we teased a little bit during the interview that we were going to take the test. We did, as I said a moment ago. So, ladies and gentlemen. You first. Okay, I'll reveal it. But I just want the audience to, to just take a guess what I am and what Missy is. All right, got that, those numbers in your head? All right, here we go. So I took the test, Missy, and I scored a type eight. You're eight. Eight, the challenger. Okay, crazy eight. I crazy like it. Eight. I like it. <laughs> yeah. The challenger. So the tell challenger. me what you know about the challenger. Well, the challenger is has leadership qualities, uh, is very driven, uh, very passionate, big idea kind of a person. Uh, sometimes that gets the eight in trouble because details fall through the cracks. Uh, also, because of the eight's ability or uh, desire to achieve goals, that a lot of times they put too much on their plate, they get stressed out. Um, a lot of times they're doing things not always for the right reasons, <laughs> uh, and that gets them in trouble to, uh, times as well. But overall, you know, I'm pretty pleased. I think it, it picked me pretty well. Okay, so I'm going to add in and interject some examples of type eight Enneagram okay. eight. Oh, great. You want to hear? Who, no, not really. Who but go you're ahead. In company with? <laughs> We're going to start out really well. Okay. Oh, so these are like actual people who are eight. Apparently, okay. I don't know who says this, but this is a list I found on Google. So surely it has to be true. Okay. Right? <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> Franklin D. Roosevelt. Oh, okay. yeah. FDR. Like him, right? Yeah. I like that. Winston Churchill. Oh, yeah. Good with that, too. We will fight them on the shores. We will fight them in the streets. Okay. <laughs> um, Martin Luther King Jr. Really? According to this list. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, Pablo Picasso, ah. Ernest Hemingway, Tony Soprano. <laughs> okay, so, so I could be a, a mob boss. You're in good company so far, right? <laughs> right. All right, now we're going to take a turn. Oh, no. Saddam Hussein. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> Donald J. Trump. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So we just negated everyone. Yes, you just right? did. Yeah. <laughs> That's who you're in company oh, with. Wow. So what you're telling me, it can go either way on the eight. <laughs> that's what I'm taking from that. Wow. So at any rate, I, you know, I read the the deeper assessment. Not I, I think it got me pretty well. So. Yeah, I think so too. I did read a little bit of that. So yeah. you ready for mine? So, yes. I am mm -hmm. a, six. a six. A six. Okay. So yes. tell me a little bit Which about six. To be Confirmed, I mentioned a moment ago about friends who have pegged me, and one friend in particular pegged me right. They said mm -hmm. I was a six. Mm -hmm. So I just highlighted a few things from this long paragraph. Anxious, <laughs> running on stress while complaining about it. <laughs> Cautious and indecisive. I'm not laughing at you. Defiant, <laughs> rebellious. They maintain a sense of vigilance, always anticipating and planning for the worst. <laughs> Six, better known as Eeyore. <laughs> right. That's what I take from that, right? Um, so um, I thought it, no, it says um, our basic fear is being without support and guidance, which I think is very accurate. Our desire is to have security and support. 
Um, when we're healthy, we can be hardworking, responsible, trustworthy, troubleshooters, foresee problems and foster cooperation, all those wonderful things. <laughs> but I um, more identified with, with the first things that I listed for you. <laughs> Which is a typical six. <laughs> Probably so. So the company that I keep uh-huh. uh, is going to be Diana, Princess of Wales. Oh, Lady Di. Prince Harry. Okay. J.R.R. Tolkien. Wow, okay. John Grisham. Really? Yes. And your big crush. <gasps> Diane Keaton? Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, now I've never been more attracted to you now. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> so, so no crazies on there for you? <laughs> oh, well, we're not going to talk about those. <laughs> You're crazy enough? <laughs> Yes, I think that that's my name is going to be added to there someday. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, and actually, no, not really. Oh. So Frodo Baggins, oh, okay. apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so, did no fictional characters could actually take the test. Ev- okay. Evidently, yeah. that's what I'm saying. So take that, yeah, with a grain of salt. But but those, that's how we identify. So now yeah. we ha- we forever have our Enneagram number, thanks to... Dr. John Singletary, who That's has right. inspired us. And now we will use our information and our knowledge and read his book and become better leaders. I hope so. And I'm really interested to see the feedback from the listeners. Do they think I'm an eight and you're a six? I mean, they'd probably say I'm a 10. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, it was. Well, before we go this week, I got to wish you a happy birthday. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Happy birthday. Thanks. You don't sound too excited about it. <laughs> I don't really like acknowledging that. I don't like the attention, I think. Yeah. Well, I'm and glad. That's always hard for you. I'm I glad like you were it. born. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. When I was at the church, ladies and gentlemen, I would, uh, Missy's birthday would roll around or our anniversary would roll around or Valentine's Day. All these wonderful days in which you're supposed to shower your significant other with with love and affection and gifts. And our staff would always ask me, you know, what are you going to get Missy for her birthday? And I would say, nothing. <laughs> they would be appalled. And I said, you don't understand. That is the best gift. No, you know what I started giving you? A day all by myself. A day myself. all by yourself. That's exactly right. Completely stayed away. <laughs> all by myself to be alone with my thoughts. It was wonderful. Yeah. Oh, so I just have a hard time with it. I'm not a good acceptor of gifts, but you've always been great. It's good. it's great. Well, good. I hope you're not disappointed this birthday because <laughs> <laughs> I've been out of town. That's right. Well, well happy you. birthday. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. It's to good er- to be around another year. And I look forward to the next one. Good. And everybody out there, happy Easter. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. And just think, ministers, ministers, family, it's almost over. Think about the nap. And if you are a congregant, give your staff, people at church, a little extra grace, a little extra love. If you want to really do something just so lovely for them, take them a meal. Mm. That's what you should do. That's a good word. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. 
Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>